Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 121 this morning. Psalm 121, we're in our second week of a 15-week look at the Psalms of Ascent. These are Psalms 120 through 134, sometimes referred to as the Psalter within the Psalter. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 121 and process a few things here as we prepare to uh, witness people proclaim uh, their intent to follow Jesus through the ordinance of baptism today. I think this is a fitting psalm. The songs that we sang just now are, are a great setup for what the Holy Spirit has inspired here in Psalm 121. Let me read this for us. Psalm 121, just six verses, or eight verses, excuse me. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We, uh, we spent some of our time last week thinking about these psalms, these 15 psalms, the psalms of ascent, and kind of what they, what they represent for the, the nation of Israel, and how they would have been read, potentially. Um, these are indicating to us, these 15 psalms in, in which Psalm 121 resides, they are indicating to us what it means to go up to worship God, to go up to worship God. They have dramatic implications for us because we as followers of Jesus believe that our lives are worship, not just simply a Sunday morning space, not just simply music, not just simply a particular time that we set aside during the week, but that all of our life is intended to be oriented to and ordered around God himself. That's what it means to live life as worship. Not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind is what Paul says in Romans 12, 2. And that's the idea of when he says that right before that in the verse, right before it in Romans 12, 1, he says that you are living sacrifices. And what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renewal of the mind. So, friends, we can walk the dog, we can weed the garden, we can go on a road trip, and we can all do it as worship. And sometimes when we think about those things, we think about even the monotony of life and the very mundane tasks that we do, and we think of them as worship, when we begin to think of those things as worship, sometimes we think to ourselves, okay, well, there's your, I, can do, I can do pretty much anything then, and it can be worship, and the answer to that is, well, no, but, uh, but at the same time, everything, every activity that we engage in, um, as it is honoring to God can be considered worship. The problem with this idea is that sin is subtle. That sin is subtle. And doing whatever can become a temptation to order your life around something other than God himself. And in that moment, our worship is transferred off of God himself and onto that other thing. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. When we order or orient our lives around something other than God himself. 
So whenever we do that, whenever we engage in ordering or orienting our life or our, our uh, energies or our intellect around something other than God himself, we are engaged, friends, in idolatry. And so we see that we're, all of life is worship, whether we're worshiping God himself or something else. We're ordering our life around something. We're orienting our life toward something. And the Bible tells us, especially, and we see clearly in the Psalms of Ascent, that our ordering and our orientation should be around God, God himself. This is the way that he intended it to be in creation. So we ask ourselves, when we come to the Psalms of Ascent, and we see these things going up to worship God, we ask ourselves the question, what is my life ordered around? What is my life ordered around? And because of the subtleties of sin, we have to stay vigilant or we slip into ordering our lives around things other than God himself. Things that really honestly are good gifts from God. Things that honestly are good gifts from God. We, We order our lives sometimes around money or work or material or our families or sex or food or drink. These things that are good gifts of God oftentimes become the ultimate for us. And when it does, then we begin to worship those things. And what Paul tells us is in those moments, we are being conformed to the world rather than transformed by the renewal of our minds. An indicator that a mind is renewed is that it now has the ability to put work and money and material and sex and food and drink and all of these different things in their proper place the way that God intended them to be. Sometimes we think about this as fire, right? We think about fire. We think about where is fire supposed to be? If if fire's in your home, a fireplace is a great place for the fire, right? If it's in the middle of the living room, it's not so great. It's a terrible place for fire, actually, and then you would need to extinguish it. That's the same with these things. God says, hold these in proper tension. Order and orient your life around me. And these good gifts that I have given you uh, will mean so much more. And so worship then is an ascent. The Psalms of ascent indicate to us that the worship is an ascent. Work and money and material and family are all these sort of bunny hills that we like to hang out on at sometimes. When we've been given the ability to scale Mount Everest. The world tells us these are the highest things we can attain, but there's something much higher. And to order your life around things of this world is to be content on the bunny hills. We cannot, friends, be content on the bunny hills because the subtlety of sin allows the things of the world to seem like the pinnacle when they're not. It's deceptive. It's a lie. God is far greater. The cre- this is simple logic, friends. Far, the 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 creator is far greater than the created things. And this is why we have a high commitment to God's word and to the people of God. Mark said, what is it like to be embraced? Someone shouted out, the church, yes, and God's word, yes. Most of those answers are yes and If we drift away from the word of God and we drift away from the people of God, we will inevitably be lured to be conformed to the world. But if we fix ourselves in the word of God and with the people of God, the things of earth will, in fact, grow strangely dim. Work, money, material, family, sex, food, drink, entertainment, all of these things, while our good gifts from God, will grow strangely dim and will drop from the forefront and be replaced by the majesty of God. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes He writes this, 
But to deviate from the truth for the sake of some prospect of hope of our own can never be wise. However light that deviation may be, it is not our judgment of the situation which can show us what is wise, but only the truth of the word of God. He alone lies, here alone lies the promise of God's faithfulness and help. It will always be true that the wisest course for the disciple is always to abide solely by the word of God in all its simplicity. Being conformed to the world, like Paul talks about in Romans 12, is a slow process. A battleship, when its course is only off a degree, finds itself miles from its final destination. And a sense of being transformed by the renewal of our mind keeps our course straight. A renewed mind isn't a mind that just makes better decisions about life or has the capacity to put more information in. No, friends, a renewed mind is a mind that God intended you to have, a mind that is fixed solely on Him and His purposes. If you hang around Mark... You'll hear him say this pretty regularly, this, this verse. I don't know, probably the most quoted verse I've heard you quote. I think it's Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. If you look at that, you see it on the screen? The word stayed, that's translated in the ESV, it's like fixed on, it's not moving off of, it's firmly placed upon. Perfect peace comes to those whose minds are constantly fixed on God. Why? Because he is the most certain place that we can put our trust. We can and we must fix our mind constantly on the God of the universe, the one who knows all things, who is in control of all things. This is not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the rule of our mind. This is life as worship. This is what it means. What it means to go up to worship God. This is what the psalmist, I think, has in mind when these psalms of ascent were written. So let's consider Psalm 121 here. Let's think about a few things that we see contained. When we look at Psalm 121, the first thing that I think comes to my mind after multiple readings is, is that this is a humiliating text. This is a humiliating text for me. Because he, the, the psalmist starts out by writing, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And, and the, the psalmist is in a place of humility here. When he says, I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? He asks this question, and he says, to, he says to himself, I'm looking to the wrong place. I'm looking to the created things. I'm looking to the things that cannot offer me the help that I need. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? When he looks upon the hills, he doesn't know. It's not clear to him where his help comes from. But then there's this resolve in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who created, who made heaven and earth. The reality is these first two verses, again, are humbling for us. Because oftentimes we look to things other than God himself for our help. And there are those here in this room. And there's those who we come in contact with throughout the course of our week who are not in this room. 
who are in pain, who are suffering. The life circumstances that are surrounding them are, are not great because of either decisions that have been made by oneself or you're in the midst of an argument with a spouse or a loved one or you're angry or lonely or depressed. The fact of the matter is you're hurting. And when you look at this psalm, immediately you think to yourself, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe something is wrong with my relationship with God. If I'm feeling these things, how could this be happening if, if I was in a good place with him? Or maybe you've thought, God has gone to deal with someone else's problems. My problems aren't big enough for him right now. Maybe he's forgotten about me. The reality of this psalm is there's some really good news for you, and this is where the humility comes in. You're wrong. That's, that's the beauty of this psalm is that it, it, lo- it looks at the, where, where does my help come from? I'm looking to these things and I'm not finding it. God, where are you in this? He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If we're feeling like God has gone off to deal with someone else's problems, the fact of the matter is that we're wrong. And the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ, that, that, that's what leads us into humility. Because it's what winds up happening. We have to fully admit that we can't fix our own problems. That we've looked our whole lives to solutions to our situations, our arguments, our angriness, our loneliness, and our depression. And we've always been disappointed with what we've found. The sin that entangles us, our self-centered posture leaves us empty and confused and without a solution. Admitting that is in fact, friends, it is humiliating. And that's where the psalmist starts. He starts with this posture of humility. I've looked to the hills for my help. But those hills have yielded nothing. No solution. No solution has come from the hills to my problems, to my sin, to my self-centeredness. The psalmist's gaze has been in the wrong place. Where does his help come from? It comes from the Lord. Who is the psalmist's Lord? Who is the one who the psalmist cries out to for help? The second half of verse 2. He who made heaven and earth. Now, it seems logical, but we frequently miss this connection. The way that the psalmist argues here is that his help can come from the Lord. Why? Because he created all things. Because he created all things. As Christians, we affirm that God, through the power of his word, created all that there is in heaven and earth. We said that God has a copyright on creation. It's his intellectual property. Like Star Wars is the intellectual property of Disney because they paid a few billion dollars for it. This earth is God's intellectual property because he made it. And it's also his physical property because he made it. Psalm 24:1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And Psalm 50 verse 10 says God says for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. God owns everything. Why? Because he made it all. He is, nothing exists that God did not make. 
And so that it would make sense that God could be the source, the ultimate source of our help in time of need. Because he is the one who made everything. The hills and the cattle on them were made by God and therefore cannot offer you the help, right? He looks to the hills. There are cattle on those hills. There are created things growing on those hills. And he says, there is no help that can come from this place. But rather, they can come, which I know most of us aren't looking to geographical features for our help. But we are looking to paychecks. We're looking to security systems. We're looking to insurance policies. We're looking to airbags. These things that offer us or worldly security are things that often we put our trust in. That we say, this is my help. But all of these things exist within creation and therefore cannot offer you the help the way that the one who made all things can. So as we continue in the psalm then in verses 3 through 6, we see the practical help that God gives, right? Where does our help come from? It comes from God himself, the one who made heaven and earth. And then, well, what does this help look like? What, is it, what does it mean to be helped by, by God? And immediately in verse 3, he says, he will not let your foot be moved. This conjures a couple of images for us. I think first and most prominently that we won't slip and fall. I think of Psalm 18, 36. You gave a wide path for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. God's help comes in the form of a wide place. The, the journey of life that we're on is not done, for those who are in Christ, the journey of life that we're on is not done on a tightrope. He makes a wide place for us to walk. It's the rock that upon we put our, that we put our foot is not wet, it is dry, it is safe. And the, the word that the ESV here translates, your Bible might say something else, but it says, be moved. He will not let your foot be moved. That word there carries the connotation of staggering or trembling. He will not let you stagger. He will not let you tremble. He will not allow your uncertain foot to slip. He will not let your trembling appendages be the reason why. can't move forward. He will not allow your weak and staggering form pre to prevent his purposes. Now, obviously the psalmist isn't writing about literal feet. But the recognition here is that the state of man is frail and is weak. And that our feet won't be moved after the proper path that can only be attributed to God himself. And so what he's saying here is don't look to the hills because they can't keep your foot from slipping. They can't keep you from trembling and staggering. So move your gaze up from the hills up to the one who made them. Elevate your view. The other image that this phrase conjures here is that our help comes in such a way that keeps our foot on, not only from trembling, but on the correct path. Not only does this idea mean that God's help will prevent slippage, but that our feet won't be moved off its proper path. The path that leads to life. The one that we're fixed upon. God is the one who ensures that we stay upon it. 
And we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves, but but how? How? Sure, I get the idea that God's help comes to me and keeps me in the proper place, walking upright. But there have certainly been times where I've staggered. There have certainly been times where my foot has trembled and has caused me to deviate what a, from what appears to be off the proper course. And maybe that's even true of you this morning, that you're feeling like you're deviating from the proper course. And the answer comes through the understanding that our deviations and our staggering does not alter God's help. God's help is not contingent upon our weak and frail form. God's help may not look to you or to me uh, like we're thriving in this life or always making the right decisions or reacting properly to life circumstances. God's help, rather, is the realization that even though your foot may appear to be moving, even though you look down and your appendages are trembling, it's an illusion. The security that God offers you is not, not the appearance of staggering, but the fact that your staggering will not amount to anything because it is he who upholds you. And this drives us back to verse 2, right? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Think about Peter and when Peter was in the boat and Jesus called out to him when Jesus was walking on the water. What was Peter's primary problem in that moment? It was that he didn't keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. The Lord of creation stood before him and he saw the wind, the text tells us, and he... And he grew afraid. Peter allowed the wind to divert his gaze. And Peter thought, where is my help coming from? And sometimes we're tempted to think that when we stagger that God has forgotten us or left us, but the psalmist thinks of that, right? The second half of verse 3, he thinks of that. He says, he who keeps you will not slumber. God is not going to sleep on you. The help he gives is not limited. God protects you from the harshest of elements. He is your keeper. He's the shade at your right hand. These celestial beings, the sun and the moon, shall not strike you. He prevents those things from from happening. They're going to throw off God and his promise to care for you. So we see that God is the source of our help, and we see the practical help that God gives, but finally then we see the all-encompassing nature of God's help. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil, and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There's, there's not much more comprehensive language that the psalmist could throw in here. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Well, up until this point, the psalmist has given us the details. He wants to communicate beyond the shadow of a doubt that what we said just a moment ago, for the people of God, there are no limits to God's help. Keep you from all evil. Keep your life. Keep your going out and coming in. This time forth and forevermore. There's no stoppage to this. 
this help that God gives is not limited by, it's not limited by sin, it's not limited by Satan, it's not limited by the world, it's not limited by life situation, it's not limited by our scenarios or our circumstances. It's not limited by where you travel, it's not limited by where you work, it's not limited by where you play. For the people of God, there are no limits on his help. So I think naturally when we read a psalm like this, we object in a couple of ways, just naturally. I think when we dive into any text, I think there's something inside of us that makes an objection. I think one natural objection is that even for the people of God, car crashes and calamities and cancer are realities. What do we make of the realities of calamity in our world? And friends, the way that the Bible addresses this is that God is God. That God is God. And we see it here in this psalm. God is our helper. He's our guardian. He's our protector. He's our security. This is part of God's divine nature. And it should be our good pleasure of vessels to have the opportunity to show everyone God's divine nature. Our lives, in a sense, are to allow God to clearly show who he is. If you have a sculpture and you want to accentuate the beauty of a sculpture, you put a, a backdrop behind it. I don't know much about fine art, but there's like some contrast there. So that you can see the intricacies of this sculpture and the, the details that the, that the one who made it has in mind. And then people say, what a lovely sculpture. And when they show up and look at the sculpture, they don't say, man, that backdrop looks really good. They say, wow, what an incredible piece of art. Because the backdrop has added emphasis to the beauty of the sculpture. And in a sense, friends, if we're in Christ, we get to do that very thing. We get to accentuate the beauty of Christ through the way that we live. And the things that we do. And the opportunities that we have to know God. And display his character to the world. God's divine nature, it's our good pleasure to show the world what it is and what it looks like. And oftentimes that doesn't just come through what we say with our mouths, but how we respond and react and live when difficulties come our way. If there wasn't a clear and present danger, we would be content to look to the hills. We'd be content to look to the hills. I think a second objection that uh, is, simply, uh, is simply something like this. It goes something like this. If, if things are going pretty well for me right now. I'm far from God. Things are going pretty well. Why, why do I need the help of a uh, creator God? Things are just fine. Now, if that's you, if that's you this morning, I highly doubt that you'd move this next direction or that you'd even admit that, things are going just fine. But you could and maybe can say that things would have worked out pretty well for you overall if you've never given God or his word or the people of God much thought. And maybe you don't intend to. In essence, the, the hills that we see, money, worldly success, work, these things have offered us what appears to be enough help. 
And if that's you and that's an objection that you make, I, I, I pray that God in this moment would have mercy on you because as Christians, our eyes have been opened to a much greater need than that we have other than just the, the physical or the temporary. A much greater need that we have the need that we have to have a relationship with our God. And that relationship because of our sin was broken. No one becomes a Christian if his or her mind, the hills, can offer us the help that we need. No one becomes a Christian if, his, if in his or her mind, sin is not an issue. Sure, things may appear on the surface to be going just fine, but you have a much bigger problem. This problem that your relationship with your creator God has been broken. A problem that no emergency fund can take care of. It's a problem of this relationship that was broken because of the sin that entangles us. The sin that we're even born into. There's only one who can reestablish that relationship. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I'm doing just fine, thank you. I pray that God would open your eyes to the fact that you need to see that your sin and the weight of it is your biggest problem. So as we go from here this week, there's just a couple of questions I think that we need to ask ourselves. And and one simply just flows out of the first two verses, or the first verse really, and it says, what hills am I tempted to look to for my help? And I think some honest assessment here, friends, would yield some significant results. You ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your heart and show you the things that, that you're trusting other than God himself to be your help. What are these things? Maybe it's money, maybe it's material, maybe it's the government. It's like, what can fix my problems? And where do I invest my time and order my life around to see these problems fixed? In our culture, friends, you know that the number one at the top of the list is money. You know it's true. You don't have to go very far to find people who say, your problems will be fixed with more money. You don't have to go far. That's probably the most deceptive thing that exists here in our culture. The the hill to which we look at, primarily, we we see people who are suffering in in a problem or have problems in this world, and we say, boy, if they just got their act together and made some more money. For the follower of Jesus, the danger is very real here. On Sunday and in difficulty, we, we can elevate our minds. We can say, where does my help come from? Yeah, of course it comes from God. We elevate our eyes above the hills and recognize that it is God who is our source of help in those moments. But during the week, managing our personal finances, we despair because the numbers don't look like they will want them to. Or the project that we're doing doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. Or our kids have a rough week and so we question our abilities as a parent. And our relationships take negative turns, and so we conjure plans to reestablish them. But if our life is worship, our eyes can't rest on the hills. We must order our life around God himself. It seems like a great idea on Sunday morning, but by Monday evening, does it really seem like that good a deal? So we have to ask ourselves, what steps can I take to elevate my eyes Above the hills. First, obviously, is to pray, Holy Spirit, show me what I'm trusting in other than Jesus. 
for my help. But then, friends, there are no surprises here. If you've been with us for a minute, if you haven't cracked your Bible open, except on a Sunday morning in weeks or months or a year, what's the first step that you can take? I shared this quote before. It's from Jen Wilkins. She says, the heart cannot know what the mind does not love. The heart cannot know, or it cannot, excuse me, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. You say you're a Christian. You say that you love God. But how? If I were to tell you that I love my wife, but I never talk to her, we never spend any intentional time together. If I tell you that I don't know what her birthday is, you'd ask, how? And the same applies here. Friends, as your pastor, my number one concern for you is that you know God. I don't know of any other way than to point you back to this. I don't know of any other way than to say the thing that God has given us to demonstrate who he is to us. I read an article this week that conducted some research on why people don't read their Bibles, and at the very top of the list was, <laughs> any guesses? I don't have time. I was reading a book that was written in the year 1656 this week, and it confirmed this. You think our society is busier and people think they don't have time? Now? 350 years ago, same thing. 350? Yeah, 350 years ago. Same thing. And if I address that with some brutal honesty, friends, <laughs> maybe not like me if I do, but I don't have enough time. I hear this regularly. We have to remember that there are three things that are eternal. God, his word, and the souls of people. Literally everything else is temporary. Literally everything else is temporary. It's going away. So if time is a resource and you've been entrusted with it, you've been given time here on this earth, so many trips around the sun, if you've been entrusted with a limited amount of time, you're saying that your only plan is to use your time for things that will yield nothing, and now you're giving your time and you must invest your marriage and your kids and your work, absolutely, but when you say that you have no time to invest in God's word. You're just saying that those things are your God. <laughs> Friends, we show what we believe and who we are by the things that we do and the, where we invest our time. And our eyes will always be stuck in the hills. Our eyes will always be stuck in the hills if we don't know who our God is. The other thing I would say is don't isolate yourself from the people of God. There are many of us in this room who are 50%-ish Sunday morning people. We meet, to every, we meet here every week because God tells us to. We don't skip weeks. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you save the day drawing near. The mentality is, I'll be there if I've got something, unless I've got something better to do. But we need to be surrounded by people as regularly as possible 
who elevate our ideas and our thoughts above the hills. These are not options for the follower of Jesus. The souls of men and women around you are eternal. Your landscaping project is not. That makes me feel guilty. Friends, that's not a guilt trip. It's, a, it's just logical. It's just logic. You wouldn't take your money and buy a car if tomorrow you knew it was going to break down and it was going to have to be scrapped. You wouldn't do that. But you would take your time and invest almost all of it in things that you know will burn up and blow away in the end. Well, the things that will last for eternity are literally right at your fingertips. It boils down to this. This is the last thing that we'll say in conclusion. The psalmist knew his tendencies. The psalmist knew his tendencies. And that's why I even asked this question. Verse 1 is him knowing his tendencies. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My tendency is not to look to the creator God, but to the hills, to created things for my help. What is my heart tempted to desire more than God himself? God has given us the ability to look to him for our help. The work of God in our lives once we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins to slowly put off the ways of this world and to work toward an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what we're going to experience. That's what we're going to witness today in baptisms. We're going to witness people saying, I've put off this old way of thinking. The desires of the flesh are no longer my primary desires, but I desire mostly for God. And in that moment, I desire mostly for God. I understand that the things of this earth are growing dim. They're dropping to the back. So this morning, if you don't know where you stand before God, or what it means to live as God intended, or maybe even just the the hills for you this morning have become alluring. Maybe they have offered you some help that seems like it's going to get you from point A to point B. Turn from the hills. The things you think can offer you help and turn to God. Because he can offer you life everlasting. Again, in him, his sacrifice, God himself sacrificed his son. Your sin that separated you from God, washed away by the shed blood of, of Jesus. Jesus made a way. His blood covers your sin. And his resurrection ensures that you'll be raised to live in eternal joy. And this is what we're going to see signified in the baptisms in just a few minutes. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And if you have trusted Jesus this morning, but those hills seem pretty great right now, turn to God's word, friends. Embed yourself in amongst God's people. Rediscover how, how much greater God is, the creator how much greater the creator is than the creation. Know him, friends, and the help that he gives. And you can say also with the psalmist, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from, friends? Before Jesus, we lifted our eyes only to the hills. But in Christ, we know that our help comes from our creator, God. Let me pray.